everyone. So as I told you, this is my first ever video podcast episode. So now you actually see what I look like. And yes, it's probably accurate to the name. So I actually am doing a segment and have never exactly said I ruled this out, but I'm actually having guests today. So today, my very first guest for my first inaugural episode of this video podcast is the author Vic Ferrari. So Vic, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about yourself. He's written quite a few hilarious books. Sure. First of all, Monica, thank you for having me on your show. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired NYPD detective. I had a wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. And when I retired from the NYPD, I moved to Florida. I was bored out of my mind. And I got into writing. And I've written a series of books, four of which are a behind-the-scenes look into the New York City Police Department, loaded with stories with things you would never imagine goes on inside the NYPD. And my latest book, which you've read, is uh, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's about growing up in the 1970s and 80s in New York City and going to Catholic high school, what that was like and the time period and me being a little son of a bitch running around the Bronx until I straightened out my life. And then I was able to become a member of the NYPD. Okay, so how did you actually get into a career as a policeman with some of the exploits I've read about in your book and some of those experiences? Well, I didn't hear what you said. Uh, it, it came in choppy. What oh, was I'm the question? sorry. I'm sorry. So I was asking how you got involved in police work when you did kind of have a bit of this wayward experience as a youth and getting into some of these scrapes and mischief. Yeah, um, I always wanted to be a police officer when I was a little boy. My mother used to take me to the movie theater. Around the corner from the movie theater was a police station. So while we were waiting for the movie to start, I would run around the corner and look at the policemen coming and going from the station house. I was fascinated with the police cars. I would look in the window and look at the equipment. Every little boy is drawn to that gun. That seemed like a good idea. I wanted one of those. And by five, I knew what I wanted to do for a living. At 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal FBI most wanted posters off the wall and go around the neighborhood <laughs> conducting manhunts. By the age of 20, I took the exam. 21, I went into the police academy and I worked in a lot of different places. I worked in the South Bronx as a patrolman. I worked in a DWI unit, which I absolutely hated. I worked in a plainclothes anti-crime unit, which is kind of like a decoy unit where you try to get the upper leg on, on, on a crime before it actually takes place. And I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division doing buy and bust operations. Didn't like that too much. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on stolen cars to, for resale. And I did a lot of cases with organized crime. I see. So one question I had actually reading your book is, did some of those childhood experiences, some of the childhood experiences that you have figure into how you did your police work? Like, did you see some things where you said, oh, this is like something I saw as a kid, or this is like something I did as a kid. It's so funny you should say that, especially after a crime has occurred a couple of minutes in the past, and everybody's trying to figure out where did they go, which way did they go, where are they hiding? 
as a kid, if you read in my book, there's a chapter called running for your life because we were always doing something. And then we had to suffer the consequences to run for our life, be it some, you know, the, uh, the usher in a movie theater, or there's a story in there. I was running away from security guards at St. Joseph's school for the deaf. And we were always running from somebody because we were doing something. So I always had the mindset of a perp or a criminal. And I, it was funny because a lot of times cops would say, you must've been a bad kid. I'm like, why do you say that? And it's like, cause you always seem to know where they're going or where they're going to pop up or, you know, cause I'm like, no, he's, he's still around. He's, you know, and it, it's funny. And, and then when I, I became a cop down in Florida, it was really like that where, um, you know, in rural Florida, you don't have a lot of city kids that become cops. A lot of it is country boys and people that move from other places. So I definitely had the upper leg down here with that because I just had a creative mind of what a criminal would do after the fact. Oh, I see. So obviously with your very long career in law enforcement, I'd like to get your thoughts for my listeners about the, basically the anti-police sentiment and the police brutality, Black Lives Matter, and all these things that we've been dealing with for the past few years. Yeah, um, it's funny because th there's a drum that bangs constantly saying that the, the police are the reason wrong for society and social justice and all this stuff. The reality is police officers in this country now have more training than they ever did before. On top of that, there's body cams. Most major police departments over the last couple of years have implemented that every cop must wear a body cam. So if you had all this police brutality and all these unjustified shootings, well, where are they? They're not. Does things happen from time to time? Yes. And they're dealt with accordingly. It, this this isn't the deep South in the 1950s or 60s where you had a problem with the local sheriff and he didn't like you. And, you know, you wound up in a ditch at the end of town. You can't get away with anything anymore. And that's inclu including the criminals. Right. Everybody's got a ring doorbell. People can take photos of you or record you on cell phone cameras. So if it was this out of control with the police, I think you'd see it a lot on the six o'clock news. Now, when it does happen, and it does, it, it occurs every now and then, they, you know, they beat it to death like a dead horse and rightfully so, but it's almost like they want it to happen as opposed to what's really going on. I, I just don't see it. And we had discussed a little bit about Jose Alba, and I guess more recently, there's the Jordan Neely incident. And you had mentioned to me that oftentimes it's not really the police who are making those decisions of who to go after and things like that. Could you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yeah. So just what happened on the subway in New York, you were talking about the Jose Alba case where you had an elderly gentleman that was working in a bodega, you know, selling things to neighborhood residents. Some woman comes in, gets into an argument with him. The next thing you know, her boyfriend goes behind the counter and starts beating the crap out of the guy. And I forget, did he shoot him or stab him? stabbed him. He stabbed him. So, and then you have on the New York City subway now with, you've got, we call them EDPs, an emotionally disturbed person is ranting and raving and, and, and talking about hurting people. And when they go to subdue this guy, unfortunately he dies. Well, you know, it, it's, it's coming to that right now in New York, because you have a lot of homeless people. You have a lot of mentally ill people who aren't getting treatment. There's no place for them to go. So what do they do? They live on the streets. And then when you have a tragedy like this, it's not the police 
that arrests somebody like that. It's the district attorney's office that tells the cops to arrest them. So with homicides, if there's one thing that law enforcement, especially the NYPD, takes seriously, it's a homicide, right? Because if that case isn't handled properly, you don't want to let a killer go. It's one thing if a cop makes a couple of mistakes with a stolen car arrest, be it he forgot to read somebody's Miranda warnings, or he did something, he 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 took he skipped a step as far as affecting an arrest. Well, the case is going to get dismissed, right? Or, or the bad guy is going to take a plea to a lesser charge. You don't want that to happen with a homicide, right? Because with a homicide, you don't want someone that's capable of taking someone's life to get another bite at that apple. So homicides are taken very seriously. The detectives work hand in hand with prosecutors. And I can tell you that that, that wasn't the police's decision to lock that guy up or Jose Alba. That goes to the district attorney's office and a bureau chief and, and, and the DA just sitting there and they're contemplating things. And they go, no, you know what? Lock them up. And they call up the detective squad and the detectives go and lock them up and file charges. So you also have a lot of familiarity with the aspects of organized crime. And I know there's definitely been people who even today have said to me, oh, well, that there's that organized crime element. You've got to watch out for that. What are your thoughts on that? Sure, there's organized crime. It's different ethnic groups are into different things. If you're talking about the traditional mafia, they're still out there. But nowhere near the golden age of the mafia is over. That's That's been over 35 years. I mean, even when I was active, they were out there and they were rocking and rolling, making money, but it wasn't to the degree they, they couldn't get away with the same things like you saw in the 70s and 80s with John Gotti or Paul Castellano or those guys. Once Giuliani figured out how to use that RICO law, they basically decimated the five families. But organized crime is more than four or five people engaged in a criminal enterprise. And I, maybe it's more than four or five. Uh, I forget now. I've been, I haven't been active in so many years, but with racketeering, it's, it's X amount of people basically having an organized crime ring. That's a business, right? There's a flow chart. Money is getting kicked up. There's profit sharing. And like I said, different ethnic groups are into different things. When I worked in the auto crime division, the traditional mafia ran all the junkyards and body shops and salvage yards in Brooklyn, Queens, a little bit in the Bronx, but mostly Queens and Brooklyn. And there was big money to be made in that because what they would do is they would send out kids to steal a car. They'd pay them 100 or 200 bucks. Stolen car comes in and that car is worth thousands of dollars in parts. Right. And they're involved in other things, too. But that's that's where I got involved in it. But then you have different ethnic groups that are into different things. So like. The Dominicans from Washington Heights, they were huge in shipping. So what they would do is they would have cars, um, cars, motorcycles, heavy equipment, anything could get put in a shipping container. You know, they're only they're paying a couple of kids a couple of bucks to steal this thing. They put it in a shipping container, and it goes over to the DR, and they're making five, ten thousand dollars a vehicle. So it, it's just different ethnic groups are into different things. Wow. So as I had mentioned before with the book, I actually went to a Christian private school for the first couple of years of elementary school. So it was like first to third grade. In fact, my mom sent me there because my, basically I'd been tested for autism when I was really, really little. So apparently I wasn't found to be autistic, but I was in special ed kindergarten. And I remember that my teacher apparently wanted to keep me on the special ed track. And my father was like, no, we're not doing that. So then my parents put me in this private school where I was basically this academic powerhouse. 
So I was only there for a couple of years, but I knew people who were there a lot longer. And in fact, a lot of the people I knew who went there, a couple of them isolated. I think one became a teacher at Liberty University. Another one became a teacher at the same school. But a lot of kids actually ended up having these wayward youth experiences, <laughs> let's just say. Teen pregnancy was not uncommon there. I had one classmate who went to public high school, later rebelled big time. Had another classmate I found out when I was in law school, apparently had a criminal record. But it sounds like a lot of the peers you knew from that school actually went on and became police officers or they did productive lives. They didn't seem to have this wayward youth experience, like a bunch of teen pregnancies or doing all this stuff. So one of the questions I had is, do you feel like authori the authoritarianism of a Catholic school, Baptist school education, do you feel like that's something that's a positive for kids that they'll basically that's a good way to help them and that they actually will fly right? Or do you feel like that was a terrible thing and that just makes people more rebellious? Well, okay. So I went to high school from 1980 to 1984, right? Different time. Yeah. Totally, you know, apples and oranges, but there was corporal punishment back then. And I remember, you know, in my book, my, you know, it's, I'm in eighth grade and my father goes next year, you're going to Catholic high school. And I'm like, we don't even go to mass. Like why, you know, he's like, cause you're a clown. And if I send you to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. So pick a school run by the men in black. So I wound up going to an all boys Catholic high school. And I didn't want that. All, most of my friends were going to public school and there were going to be no girls. So I'm like, what the, you know, like, what is this? It's like doing time. Like, I was like, what the, you know, I, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And freshman year, I was miserable because it was, the kids were a lot smarter than me. I, I went from in public school in the old days, in the New York City public school system, basically the classrooms were where, where you ranked in the food chain. So they had the IGC classes, intelligent, gifted children. I was in one of those. And then, like, say you were in eighth grade. It's uh, eight IGC one, eight, eight IGC two, and then you had eight one, eight two, eight three, eight four. And kid, the behavioral problem kids or the kids with lower IQs, unfortunately, were in the eight fives, eight sixes. You know, I'm sure this has all been changed, but back then that's the way it was. And I, you know, I thought I was a genius. And then I went into Catholic school and I was like basically in the middle of the pack. And I'm like, well, all right, it's a kick in the ass because you know, it, and it's the same as sports as a story in there in sports. Like I was this really superior athlete, in my neighborhood. And then you go to Catholic school and you get all these kids from all over the city and I'm average at best. So it was definitely a humbling experience. By sophomore year, I started figuring things out. I was more comfortable in my own skin. I started making a lot more friends. And it was a good experience for me. And they did have corporal punishment. And did I get thumped? Yeah, a handful of times. Did I deserve it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I was a smart ass. And I was always doing something, setting off stink bombs in the bathroom. Or when you first walked in, when you first walked into the foyer, they had... I think it was St. John the Baptist was one statue and Jesus is another. We used to put cigarettes in their hands and stuff. I mean, if they caught you, you'd catch a whooping, but we did it anyway. So I, for me back then, I, I think I needed that. And I think it definitely helped me along the way. And as I point out in my book, out of a graduating class of 250 boys, 40, 40 became New York City police officers. And that was every year. So that high school basically was like the way Penn State produces linebackers for the NFL. It just was a civil service factory. And then you had a lot of guys that went to the fire department, a lot of guys that went to work for the utilities. Were there some guys that just, you know, didn't make it in life? 
there were a handful, but it was far and few between. Hmm. That's definitely that's definitely interesting to note. So do you have any upcoming plans or projects at this point? I do. I'm writing another NYPD themed book. I don't have a title for it, but I'll get to that. That's usually the last thing I figure out when I'm writing a book. But uh, yeah, I'll have another NYPD themed book coming out in probably by the end of the summer. Okay. And if you had to do it all over again, would you? And is there anything that you regret or things you would have done differently? If I could go back to the future, I would do it all over again. Absolutely. Um, looking back, I've had a wonderful life. Everybody has bumps and bruises and things you want to change. But the reality is it's worked out for me. So I'm going to go with that. Um, if I could change a few things, I would have definitely paid more attention in school. Definitely. I, I still have this reoccurring dream where I wait, where I'm in, I'm in a classroom and I don't know what the hell is going on, what they're talking about. And I'm saying to myself, do I really bear down and study or just fuck it? I'm going to go to summer school like I've been doing every other year. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, shit. Well, I don't have to go to summer school. Another thing I would have changed about my life is, especially in the New York City Police Department, I always believe that my work should stand on its own. And I and I'd like to believe I was a very good worker, but I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't a politician. I didn't kiss ass. And that kept me from being promoted. I always got put in to be promoted to second grade detective, but I never went joined fraternal organizations. I never rubbed elbows with people. And my lieutenant used to tell me all the time, he'd go, Vic, you got invited to the dance. You got to get picked. You got to start networking. And that wasn't me. But what's ironic now is I'm writing these books to promote my books, that's all I do is network. I mean, that's that's how I found you and countless other podcast hosts that are nice enough to put me on this show. So there was definitely a learning curve. If there was one thing I could change, I wish to God I would have known that. And, you know, I, I probably would have had a more successful NYPD career. But the grand scheme of things, I wouldn't change a thing. Hey, wonderful. So how can we find you? Like, this is a time for self-promotion, any links? Yeah, sure. So- yeah, if, if you're interested in, in behind-the-scenes look in the New York City Police Department, and just to give you an example, here's my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, loaded with funny stories and what happens when your car gets stolen, who steals your car, a car thief's mindset, tons of terminology, and it teaches you how to protect your car from getting stolen. Um, NYPD law and disorder. That's about a lot of things that went wrong behind the scenes of the NYPD. Just go to the Amazon book section, type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car. My paperbacks will come up. They're all 10 bucks or $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me for an interview, or you got a question to ask, reach out to me at Twitter and Instagram at Vic Ferrari 50. Okay, wonderful. So if anyone else would like to be a guest as Vic has generously taking his time to do today you can contact me at the gorgeous ginger lawyer at gmail.com and Vic thank you very much for coming on to the show and we look forward to seeing you again and hearing further from you Monica thank you again I really appreciate the opportunity